0: my message to any founder listening to this that's contemplating maybe exiting a business one day is just say yes to everything all along the way and just kind of keep a black book. So I've been having coffees and lunches and conversations with people who might one day be suitors for five years, really.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The melting pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The melting pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Robert Belgrave. Rob is the CEO, Amir for Pax8, who are a modern cloud distributor. So historically, you might have gone to a traditional distributor if you're a managed service provider and you might have bought software, which you then resold to a client. In the modern cloud age, We're all very used to deploying Google, or Microsoft 365, but it still needs to be licensed. And then there are a plethora of SaaS tools that businesses use. No single sign-on, no overarching security. And so a company like Pax8 can provide all of that to a managed service provider to then them to create packages, bundles, deliver the solution that they need to their end clients so that they can run their business, provide the IT for their end clients to run their business. Rob was historically the founder and CEO at Wirehive, standing client of ours. And what I'm talking to him today about is how did they set Wirehive up to be acquired? So lots of the CEOs that I speak with, whether they be privately owned or venture capital backed or private equity backed, there's some sort of timeline. There's something around creating value over some time frame that they're looking to manage, looking to monitor. And at Wirehive, they knew they were going to sell. Rob talks about that journey and how they made specific decisions to set themselves up for success, how they went about choosing who they were acquired by and how they triggered the process without a formal advisor to help them why they made that decision, how they made the pick they did, looking back what he might have done differently. So this is for anyone who's out there thinking, how do we set up our business for success? How do we make the right acquisition choice or acquire a choice? And how do we make all of that happen and have fun fun along the way? And Rob also, we kick off by talking about his night job, I guess, where he has, uh, he's on a mission to help us all solve climate change and make the planet a great place for our grandchildren to live. So great conversation today with Rob Belgrave. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did.
0: Hey, I'm Rob, Robert Belgrave, CEO of Pax8 in EMEA, uh, previously CEO and co-founder of Wirehive. It's my kind of by day and by night, I'm a chair and co-founder of a social enterprise called Ecology. Where do you want to start?
1: What's ecology? We'll dive into the other stuff, but let's start there. What does that cuz I am always intrigued by the fact that you have a nighttime job as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um so ecology is my pro bono gig, I guess. I helped the founding team set it up about 2 years ago and it's a platform to help businesses and individuals fund the world's best climate crisis solutions, right? So that looks largely like reforestation so planting trees in places where they have the most impact or purchasing carbon credits through something that's called gold standard which is kind of an approval scheme for like making sure that they really are what people say they are and we started it as a kind of subscription service largely aimed at consumers and so individuals and it's grown in an incredible way uh, and now has vast numbers of businesses using it in all kinds of clever ways, doing things like planting a tree for every product they sell. And I don't know, like AXA insurance in Ireland offset everyone who insures their car with AXA using our platform and things like that. So it's sort of become this amazing sort of amorphous marketplace really for people who want to tackle the the climate crisis and do their part.
1: And how many trees a day, a week, a month, a year do you plant? Good question. So it's because a lot of it
0: is subscription based, and it's growing so so incredibly fast, we're planting about one hundred, hundred to maybe one hundred fifty thousand trees a day at time of recording, and that gets us to thirty. Oh, I should have checked before we recorded thirty two million today. Listener, by the time you're listening to this, it will probably be considerably more than that.
1: When do you get time to plant all those trees? <laughs>
0: That we uh, we work largely with uh, a specialist tree planting organisation, a charity called Eden Projects, who are one of the best in the world at doing it. We also have some sort of local projects, uh, like we have a, a place up in Scotland where we're doing some planting, and some places in different countries as well, which are smaller scale and higher cost than the Eden Project stuff. But some people really like to fund trees in their own countries rather than in the places that have the most impact. So we have a bit of a mix of, of planting partners.
1: Where are trees having the most impact at the moment?
0: So it's it's commercial, right? It's it's a, um, a factor of the economics. So the best bang for buck where you can plant trees right now is in places like Madagascar and Mozambique. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that. The types of trees that you can plant there, so a lot of it is mangrove trees, which have a number of benefits above and beyond carbon sequestration because they have an amazing root system that houses an incredible diverse population of wildlife which is all part of the mix so there's sort of a number of reasons why those areas and those species of tree are the most favorable but I mean to to give you an idea for us to plant a tree in the UK costs a couple of quid to plant a tree in one of our planting sites in Mozambique costs about 10p so you know it's about bang for buck really and giving you know the We all share the same atmosphere. It doesn't matter where the trees are, right? It's like ultimately the the problem is a global one. So, you know, working with Eden, we've selected the sites where we feel we can help our customers get the most impact for
1: their money. And of the clients that you work with, what is the most intriguing or humorous free tree for every product? (laughs) <laughs> incentive that one of your customers is running
0: i wish i could tell you like a sex toy story or something That'd be <laughs> much, much more salacious wouldn't it um most funny oh god i don't know if i've got anything humorous for you but there's some really heartwarming stuff like a lot of stuff aimed at kids who think is fantastic so we did a big partnership with peppa pig sorry to the parents who have that etched into their skulls we were nothing to do with the theme tune creation but we are helping teach your children about how to save the planet
1: i always feel with my kids that if peppa pig wasn't jumping in muddy puddles but actually emptying the dishwasher then that would have been much more helpful (laughs) well now she
0: well now now she's planting trees so there we go um but uh, we did a i don't know other really cool stuff uh, just one more example we um we did some work with us too the world leading UK based game studio created this beautiful game called Alba uh which is available on Nintendo Switch and other platforms Steam for PC and things like that and there's an interaction in the game which creates tree planting so the game is this really beautifully designed story of a young Spanish girl kind of saving an island rescuing animals and looking after the trees and things like that aimed at children and it's just a really thoughtfully crafted game and so they wanted to create a tie into real impact as well as teaching kids about impact through the the medium of gaming and that uh, seems to have started a trend like we're seeing more and more of that with other games as well where like in-game interactions trigger real life consequences and let's not talk about the metaverse today but that is maybe part of that whole kind of gaming and metaverse world of the future so there you go that's the sidebar out of the way that's ecology
1: very very good thank you so look I wanted to get you on today because as you said in your introduction founder and CEO at Wirehive and I've been involved in your journey for some time part of that journey has been the acquisition by Pax8 certainly when I speak to people and say what's the plan often CEOs are saying to me, Well, we are where we are, and in the next three to five years, we want to sell. I want to do an exit. I want to re-engineer the business around maximizing the value I get from an exit. Or even I want to be exit ready, even if I have no particular plan to sell the business. So I wanted to try and pick your brains. You know, when is it? When was it a year ago since you got acquired?
0: Announced it Jan fifteenth, twenty one, closed just before Christmas of, of um I guess that would be 2020 wouldn't it so yeah just over a year
1: and you and your co-founders always had a plan to exit at some point
0: yes but not with any clarity about timings i think look the, the context people need to understand if we say that is Wild hive was a scale up we did it without any venture funding or really any debt at all so if you build a business in that way quickly as we intended to you know, growing 50 to 100% year over year since the day we started, you simply can't take any money out of it. Because if you do, you'll kill it, right? Like you can't or certainly we will kill the growth anyway, like you just can't grow a business that quickly organically without a capital injection. And that has to come either from future profit, or from debt, right in the form of venture or, or bank debt, like proper debt, as opposed to equity sales. So because we had been leaving all of our money in this asset that we've been building, we all kind of knew like, one day, there'll be a moment where we'll want to have that liquidity event, as people call it, and realize some of the value of the asset we've built so that we can do things like buy houses and live enjoyable lives, right, as, as everybody wants to. So, and you know, it was a big punt for us, because we all gave up. Fairly significant earnings capacity. I mean, I, I turned down a job for Google to run an engineering team in Zurich in my late twenties to s- set up Warhive with my partners, which was fairly well remunerated, as you can imagine, compared to a scale up where you're sort of wondering if you can pay yourself another grand a year. So, so yeah, we did always sort of we always knew like that's probably the path, but we didn't have like any really clear timeline or. Or catalyst for it. We just knew like when the time was right, it would probably feel right. And that is kind of how it played out for us. Did you
1: therefore hire any advisors to help you with your sale process?
0: All the advice we got from everybody is you need to appoint a broker or an advisor. I mean, we always had quite a strong board at WireHive. Someone our listeners may know well, may or may not have been part of that for some time, as were a few others. But, you know, we had a we had a strong board. So we had great advice around us and were part of some fairly mature networks of entrepreneurs and founders. So we kind of knew knew the, the journey, like we knew what to expect. But still, everybody said, no, look, you know, when you get to that moment where you might consider taking an offer, you have to appoint an advisor and you go out and you kind of put the business up for sale, right? And we did go through the process of talking to some of those people to sort of see how it might work. But most of them were really average, honestly, and I just didn't, uh, this might sound arrogant, but I just didn't really get the impression they were going to offer me anything that valuable, certainly not the two, three, four, five hundred 500 grand sort of value that they expect to charge you as a fee. They all have slightly different mechanics, of course, but that's basically where you will end up however you structure it. So you know i was sort of a bit apprehensive to sign up with a lot of the brokers and advisors we talked to there was one chap who we met who we really liked and we were sort of pretty close to to thinking we'd go that way when we were ready but the business he was running, got bought, and therefore was no longer available to us due to the size of our business. We basically were too small for the business that bought them, which is what it is. So we were kind of in this position where we thought, well, maybe we'll circle back again and 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 see. But as things played out, as maybe we'll come to, we didn't end up needing any help, which is perhaps a little
1: unusual. It's interesting that person you who has been a guest recently on the podcast. And it's funny because when you speak to him, he says, look, any of the private equity firms love to buy companies that don't have an advisor but would never sell a company themselves without one so yeah take from that what you will i suppose yeah yeah um so how did you end up did i mean you were getting tickles and nibbles all the time before you ended up getting serious with pax 8
0: yeah so look i think my message to any founder listening to this that's contemplating maybe exiting a business one day is just say yes to everything all along the way and just kind of keep a black book so i've been having coffees and lunches and conversations with people who might one day be suitors for 5 years really you know mindful that those conversations might be good business opportunities for business development or they might be conversations about an exit one day or whatever and all of the capital crew you know pe and the rest they all want to know you early because they know that's how they kind of develop a stable of opportunities, right? And they, they all appreciate it's a long game. So so I always, I'd had quite a few conversations and I'd had lots of approaches and either the timing wasn't right for us or the business that was inquiring wasn't that interesting or, you know, lots of different reasons why the answer was never, okay, cool, let's have a more serious conversation about this along the way. We found ourselves in the COVID year, a lot of uncertainty on the market. I think when you've spent a long time building a business with a what feels a bit like a family culture you start to feel quite nervous about supporting that team's livelihood and the ongoing health of the business through such an uncertain time when you don't have a war chest again scale up so very limited cash reserve no debt no big facility to draw down against if we had had a really tough time as it turned out we actually traded really well through that period but you know so there were a lot of variables in play and i guess i just got the right you know, the right email on the right day. You know, um, Pax8 reached out to me. I'd never heard of the business, had a conversation with them. And I decided to figure out pretty quickly what they were like because our call was on May the 4th of uh, 2020. And I turned up with a Chewbacca mask on, which... um, I'm not recommending that necessarily to those listening, but it worked for me. I'd had it, it was you know, a Snapchat filter. It was when everyone was like doing filters on video calls because everyone was going stir crazy doing too much Zoom. And I had it on from the previous team meeting. I think we'd done it like, on all hands or something. And I just I just thought, I'll just leave it on and see how these guys react to it, right? Either they're cool and laid back and we'll get on or they're really not. And that's the end of this conversation. So yeah, we kind of had a chat and it led to us getting quite interested in what they were doing. And uh, initially we were looking at partnership and then we realized actually it would be really messy and maybe uh, some sort of, you know, merger of, of, of minds would be a better fit for everybody. And then of course I opened the back book and reached out to everybody from along the previous five years and did that thing your broker and advisor would charge you 500 grand to do, which is create a bit of competitive tension. So, you know, I offered, you know, I, I offered it up to basically anybody else who wanted to come into the conversation and we, we had other offers as well. But ultimately, none of them were as attractive as Pax 8. It wasn't actually the most cash. We took what we felt was the best deal for the ongoing well-being of the business and for ourselves as well, because we wanted to, we weren't ready to retire. You know, we wanted to stick around. And so we've been able to do that. It
1: sounds like that best for us, not the most cash Chewbacca mask is is your sort of culture filter. mm on the people so you're allowing yourselves to be acquired and making sure there's a cultural fit
0: yeah yeah I mean look, I think a couple of things really I think we we wanted to keep going really like our motivation for seeking an exit was not to sail off into the sunset it was you know again framing this for people listening conscious you can't see me or my business partners we're all in our late 30s right so we're not exactly in retirement mode just yet and so we were really looking for somebody we could continue the journey with not sell to and walk away from and we've cared deeply about our team we'd built a culture-led business from the very beginning always putting culture first and finding somebody in Pax8 that saw the world in the same way we did professionally speaking you know clearly had a fantastic culture, albeit a US centric one at the time. We were the first international expansion for the business. You know, it just all sort of felt right and felt like, you know, maybe we genuinely found a, a partner where we could we could stick around and keep going and our team would as well. And you know, I think it's testament to the the accuracy of that assessment that we've still got every single person with us. Sorry, no, we lost one sales guy who left as a good lever and went to a startup who offered him a load of equity, right? Good luck to him. He was a good guy. And the rest of the team are still with us and have found, you know, new homes in, in the PAX eight kind of apparatus and a, a big part of our,
1: our ongoing growth. And so looking back at Wirehive a year after, are there some things you got right at Wirehive and some things you got wrong? Oh <laughs> in give, with given given twenty twenty hindsight? I mean that's an open question,
0: Don. What could you could you narrow it down a little bit for me in what particular context of right and wrong?
1: I, I don't know anything. I was I I'm just thinking uh or specific to
0: exit you mean
1: well I, I was just thinking if you went back in a time machine yes yeah, specific to exit if you went back in a time machine are there some things that you would have done in the the last two or three years at wire hive that would have i don't know got you more money made it easier mitigated any issues you might have now had
0: oh yeah probably this is where you're meant to share some like absolute gems of wisdom but honestly looking back we didn't make many mistakes like there was stuff we could have done differently and it might have had a different outcome but i'm gen there really isn't anything that keeps me up at night you know i don't look back at what we did on our journey at wildhive and think oh if we just done this or done that you know like we definitely could have grown faster we definitely could have we could have been more sales focused that would have had a knock on effect which might not have been positive in some ways but it would have made the business grow faster that would have made it potentially worth more but maybe not to the person that ended up acquiring it because actually a big part of what they liked was the quality and the culture of the business, not just its revenue performance. So we sort of, honestly, this was a, this is a bit of a Goldilocks story. Like we threaded the needle here. We We built a business really balancing culture and purpose against profit and personal financial wealth for the founders and managed to find a unicorn, you know, a business worth more than a billion dollars who valued all of those things as much as we did and was willing to pay handsomely, not just to take that business on, but to take its team on and its leadership on and make them integral parts of its future. I, I can't tell you too many stories from fellow founders that sound like this one. So I suppose I feel, you know, what do I lie awake at night thinking? I I feel grateful really, because I know how much of this is luck as much as it is judgment and timing. And so what would my wisdom be? It would be, be true to yourself, run the business you want to run. You know, maybe one day someone will want to acquire it. Maybe they won't. You can't rely upon that happening. We never did. If we hadn't had an offer in 2020, Weirhive would still be trading successfully today. And I think the other thing I would say looking back that we always did was we always thought about structuring the business in a way that would make it attractive.
1: As you were saying, well, you know, it's a Goldilocks story. We got lucky, blah, blah. Actually, I was thinking exactly that, which was that there was always a, at least an annual review of where does this business want to be seven years out, five years out, three years out. What's the gap today? What's the product mix? Who's the customer? What's the route to market? Only a couple of years ago, the whole business went through that transition from being basically a provider of hosting services on VMware to a public cloud consultancy and the cash flow implications that, that you went through at the time to make that transition happen and then doing it on Azure, which then drove the value to your acquirer. So there's like those strategic decisions that you then executed on extremely well. Yeah, <sighs> It's all sounding like I'm.
0: I'm just sounding really arrogant. Like, oh yeah, we did it all perfectly. Look, we made loads of mistakes. We learned from them. You don't get it all right. But in terms of the material, like substance of it, we ran the business really well. We had good advice. We were critical of ourselves when things didn't go the way we wanted them to, and we repaired them and and traded around it. The Drucker quote, or at least he's attributed with it, like you know the whole culture, strategy for breakfast stuff. I think. That's a big part of this story. You know, it's like, look, if you've got a good business with strong culture, you can kind of overcome the challenges that come up. And there were loads of challenges. You know, we had to make redundancies once in the journey. That wasn't a fun three months. And that hits you hard in a small culture orientated business. What's the story there? That's a mistake I suppose I could talk about. We overinvested ahead of growth. One of the few times we let ourselves get a little bit carried away with our cost base and growth didn't keep up. And we just had to cut back for three months and just let everything balance out, right? Which it did. And we rebounded and went again. But, you know, ultimately it's that binding force of great culture, great leadership and like a properly run board and leadership team. I know that seems like an obvious thing to say. And I think because I hadn't experienced many other leadership teams when we started, well, i have only one prior to that. I just sort of didn't really know any other way for it to be done. And I think I've had a few advisory roles and I, you know, chair a few boards and stuff myself now, and I see, wow, it can be done a lot worse than how we did it, right? Like, and maybe you could comment on that. I mean, you've been with us through that journey and and were part of counseling us along the way. Like, what would would your comment be on, on that sort of quality of a leadership team and what impact that can have?
1: I think so often people put together a board which doesn't add value you know, or they're hiring non-execs that don't have a process. And certainly, you know, some of the board meetings, board meetings were never dull. They were often contentious, never anybody falling out personally, but there were often days where there were robust discussions in the boardroom, you know, which were really difficult for individuals to hear. And I think that it's the quality of those discussions so often when I'm working with clients or talking to prospects, you just get the sense that there's not enough conflict in the room. So if somebody says everything, everyone agrees. Everyone agrees, but nobody agrees. And there's not that robust discussion and fighting a way through to the best answer that then everybody agrees with. And so I think I think having three founders was... <laughs> I still tell the story that I'd worked with you for two years before I realized that your title CEO was merely that you actually at at that point didn't run the company and that the three of you ran the company and I was just terribly frustrated but couldn't understand what was going on. And So when when I ask clients, is the CEO actually the person who runs the business? And they look at me like I'm slightly mad and it's just like... I'm just checking. It has happened before. But once you've got that structure,
0: democracy has its benefits. Sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, and so we got once you've got that sort of clarity of structure in place, I think um I think that it was the robust discussions, right? Because some of that strategic change had implications for individuals and their egos and you were able the three of you were able to battle through that. So other companies at that point, you know, the founders get divorced or somebody falls out or somebody realizes they can't, they can't play the new game. Yeah, we never got there. You know, we never got to that
0: conversation in our journey together as founders where somebody said, I just can't do this with you anymore. We're going to have to go through crisis resolution and mediate it or whatever. Like we just never did. And I actually think odd numbers would be my tip there. I think odd numbers of founders. You can have one, three or five, but never find yourself with two or four had so many stories from people who get into those sort of impasse situations in odd numbers of founding groups so i think if you know if when i start another business one day i would stick to that i would do it on my own with majority stake or i'd find two partners again five's probably a bit much frankly but i think three is a good number
1: and is there anything about the pax eight journey that you weren't part of where you think oh that was really quite innovative or interesting that they did that and that's worked out well for them
0: yeah, I mean, I suppose we haven't really framed what Pack8 is. So if you're wondering, or what WireHive was, for that matter. So maybe we like sold radishes or something. I mean, no one's going to know, are they? <laughs> maybe we should go with that. It would be a more entertaining story. Yeah, look, I mean, so Pack8, I'll spare you what WireHive was. You can go and look on wirehive.com if you're interested. But what Pack8 is today, which WireHive is now part of, is the world's leading marketplace for IT professionals to buy, deploy, manage, cloud software, right? So Microsoft 365, and all of the other software that really every business requires today. So there's a plethora of SaaS in the world, whether it's your Zoom licensing or whatever, and businesses need a way to buy that in a modern dynamic way that is not provided by the sort of legacy box shifters of old who want to sell you a toner on the same phone call as an office license, right? So PaxA saw that change coming. They saw how SaaS was going to continue to consume the world. And Was founded by this guy called John Street, who's a fantastic entrepreneur. This is his third promoted business, so venture funded business. Previous two were were very successful. And his bet really was that in the future, SaaS software will become so ubiquitous, it will be almost app store easy to purchase it if the right technology solutions emerge. And that's what we've been building really for seven years. And you know, I love that quote, which is like, if you're three years early, you're a lunatic. If you're one year early, you're a genius. Well, John was in lunatic territory. Like, at the beginning, no one would fund it. He had to fund it himself from his own wealth and some, some some angels that were basically saying, I think you're mad, but I trust you, so I'll invest. And it wasn't until about year five or six, really, where Pax8 found this kind of product market fit and scale and since then i've genuinely never seen a business grow like it i mean we're talking uber levels of growth i remember when they showed me the pnl for the business during the early conversations and i thought they'd made it up like i mean like you know just this can't be real you know in terms of the speed of 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 customer acquisition and, and revenue growth and so there's a huge amount those guys did incredibly well long before i turned up which i won't take any credit for my chapter of the pax eight story is landing in the UK and making it work here and now expanding it into Amir. And that's what I'm doing, right? So I, I run Amir for the company. I sit on the Global C staff, so I feel connected still and still feel like I'm in charge, which is probably why I'm still enjoying it, frankly. And we've almost got the easier ride now because we've they've already built this thing that works and everybody wants, and we just get to sell it to people in Amir. And so unsurprisingly, we had an absolutely bumper first year and are making huge waves across the channel taking you know loads of partners off sort of sleepy incumbents and winning net new partners that weren't working with a business like backstate before so yeah it's um it's a pretty good time at the moment
1: and amir so you're in you're in the uk you're in you're in holland you're in scandinavia
0: yeah so Right now, really, it's UK, UK and Ireland and Europe, and we'll continue to spread out. So yeah, based out of Bristol in the UK, our European HQ is in Zwolle, which is in the Netherlands, north of Amsterdam. Then we've got Belgium, Frankfurt, so Germany, Frankfurt. Uh, We've got some stuff going on in Scandinavia, looking at France, Italy, Spain at the moment. You don't have to be a a genius to figure out Pax8 is going global, right? We're well on the way. And um, my job has been sort of securing that toehold into Europe.
1: What's your current hiring rate in the UK?
0: The biggest challenges come from the speed of of hiring in all kinds of different ways. So we went from 30 to 150 people in the first year in the UK. Uh, we'll probably double that again this year to 250, 260. So if you or any of your friends and family want a fantastic job in technology, sorry to plug, do look at pax8.com's careers page because we are hiring lots of people. We're growing the team aggressively. And and I think what's hard about that is culture. Like, you know, there's, you and I have talked many times about the Dunbar number and about the, um, which for those who don't know is the, uh, the number of people which a human can hold a meaningful first degree relationship with it's a hundred people debate, but basically it's a hundred. And, you know, we're past that number now. And so we're, you know, we're, we're kind of getting into that scale where it becomes really, really hard to keep culture on the rails if it goes wrong. And you sort of have to cede control of it to your, to your team and accept that they will take control of what your culture is. Right. And so you can only do that with a really strong foundation and some good guardrails and that takes time to develop. And when you're hiring really quickly, it's very, very hard to develop that because, you know, you, you look up one day and you realize there are more new people in the room than there are old people, right? Like you've got a room with a hundred people in it and only 20 of them have been in the business more than six months, you know? And it's like, wow, there is no history here. There is no ritual of the tribe. Like everybody is making it up and you well, how on earth do you, do you solve for that? Hiring is such a key part of it, I think. like, So the big challenges for us are making sure that we hire the right people. Because if we hire the right people, and we do that by calibrating against core values and the type of person we want, as opposed to the skills that they have, then there's a pretty good chance that they're going to behave in the way we want them to, that, you know, to be a Pax8 citizen, to be part of the kind of culture we're trying to create. And then you just have to nurture that and hope that with a little bit of adjustment here and there and, you know, feed and water the right areas and and it'll all kind of come good. And so far it is, but I I do not take that for granted. That is definitely our biggest challenge at the moment.
1: And what is it, you know, now you wish you'd known earlier, which often is when I ask that people are thinking about their entire life, but you know, you've been on before talking about cryptocurrency. Um, You might have answered that question. You don't have to answer it the same way. It might just be in relation to the acquisition by Pax8.
0: I'll reframe it a slightly different way. Like, what would I tell my earlier self? You know, like, what would I I go back and tell 28-year-old Rob setting off on this journey? I would probably reassure me that a lot of the stuff I was really uncertain about was right you know, your belief that culture is the guiding force in a business and is the most important thing is correct, right? Like you always think long-term, you know, avoid short-term decision making, think long-term, think about the impact of the decisions you make and take pain in the short-term for the longer-term gain. I would share some of the amazing tools and systems, and and this is just, this now will probably make some people gag, but I really mean it. You and others have shared along the way with me and the team you know i think having the right tools and and systems to run a business well is gold dust so that's that's where i'll go i'll say have the right tools to run your business properly and that is a mix of things like eos all the stuff from scaling up there's just an incredible toolkit of stuff out there. I'm just scratching the surface. I could reel off about 20 different things, right? But all of that stuff is so important to give you the structure to build a business that runs well and to challenge yourself and each other in your leadership teams to make sure that you are asking those difficult questions. You know, having those, having that sort of constructive confrontation as you described it earlier, ultimately giving you what you need to spot problems before they really become irreparable and, and head them off with your teams. So, um, sign up with Dom. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I actually mean it. It's so, I feel like a real knob saying that, but it's like, but it's true. <laughs> like, you know, you find somebody like Dom, right. Whether it's him or somebody else, you need great leadership coaching. You need the right tools and systems to run business well. There you go. That's my, my wisdom from the journey.
1: And what, uh, what's on your bookshelf? What are you reading? What's good? What would what? What do you think people should read? Amy
0: Edmondson's Fearless Organization, most important book I've read in the last six months, and probably largely because it speaks to my challenge, right, in terms of culture and uh, a fast-growing young team. But uh, I just think there's so much in that book that I wasn't expecting. Like I love all the stuff about clinical error rate and you know, the unexpected patterns there about how higher performing teams statistically look worse and all that stuff. Like I won't spoil the punchline for people, but that's my book recommendation.
1: Very good. And she's also been on the podcast. So there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to episode. I can't remember what it was, but she's also, um, think is 50, one of the top, uh, global management thinkers. Uh, she's lovely. And great work, great book.
0: Yeah. And if I had to give everyone one more, it's me- um, Measure What Matters. Pax has been going on a big OKR journey to try and get organized with scale and John Deere's Measure What Matters. I know it's well known and not new, but um, it's an absolute bedrock, I think, for anybody trying to figure out how to set objectives well as a business.
1: Fantastic. Brilliant. And Rob, if somebody was going to do something differently tomorrow, what should they do? Sign up with Ecology. <laughs> Um, I used to think you weren't in sales uh I've changed my opinion
0: half joking the reason you should do that is not because it's the right thing to do or and because your grandchildren will thank you when they can live on our planet but because it actually will make your business more attractive for staff it will help you keep the staff you've already got in an incredibly hot and competitive job market and it will help with customer acquisition so taking my sort of plug off and t- telling you you know there is method to the madness here like i think it's such an obvious thing every business should be doing right now because it pays for itself and it's the right thing to do like how often in life is that true um so there you go that would be my one recommendation is think about the esg creds of your business work them into your employer brand work them into your customer proposition the data shows us clearly that businesses that do that are winning over ones that don't and that's only going to Uh, increase in kind of amplitude over the coming 12 months
1: fab the the one thing that i thought you might say which stuck in my mind was say yes to everything (laughs) because i so often meet founders who keep everybody at arm's length because they say i'm not for sale i'm not for sale and they're just missing out on a big rich seam of competitive or positioning data and even how even how people think about their business and from the outside and what what might make it an interesting transaction in the future. So maybe both of those things, say yes to everything and plant more trees.
0: I sort of told that story earlier, didn't I? I think I would totally support that. I think that is uh, in life as well as in business, right? Just a great,
1: just say yes to everything. Why not? Do you know what? I remember now a, a conversation you and I had about the offers, the two offers, primary offers you had on the table. And I said, which one of these would be the most disruptive to your business? And you said, well, PAX eight. I said, well, there you are then. Why didn't you go with that? Because that's, that's the furthest away from the status quo. Toss a coin, you know, what's the most disruptive? And, and you went, yeah, okay. And then you came back to me a week later and went, yeah, I thought about that. You're probably right. Yeah. Say yes to everything, say yes to more adventure.
0: What a beautiful point to end on. I think we've, uh, <laughs> it's in the can, isn't it? I mean, surely that's where we're ending. Um, yeah, Dom, no, I, I agree. That would be just don't be closed-minded. By saying yes, you open yourself up to opportunity. That was certainly my experience. It's not obvious where that might come from. And you've got to be in the conversation, right, for those, those amazing opportunities to arrive. Ours did. Pax 8 speaking to us was the result of us having that attitude and some of the relationships that we've built.
1: Rob, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Tom. See you later.